Blaine, give it up. Uh, it's too bad the guy he just described won't be here. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're just stuck with me. Uh, gentlemen, it is great to be with you. Uh, I, truly an honor, truly a privilege. I work full-time in Catholic ministry. I get to experience a lot of these things. And uh, I can tell you this is a unique entity in the Catholic ministry world. What a great gift, what a great privilege that you have to have the king's men and, and the dedicated volunteer leaders. That is by far one of the most impressive things I've experienced so far in this weekend. Just inspired by the, the witness of these leaders who volunteer their time to serve you. Because you mean that much to them. So I really want you to, uh, to give them an opportunity and to say thank you to them uh, for what they're doing for you. Um, there's a, I have a website, catholichack.com, and as Mark uh, indicated, I have a saying, and it's to be the donkey Jesus rides today. You know, in the book of Judges, there's a famous strong man, Samson, with his long hair. You know, Samson was famous because he could slay hundreds and thousands of Philistines with nothing more than the jawbone of a jackass. And so I got to thinking, if God can accomplish all of that with nothing more than the jawbone of a jackass, imagine what he'll do with a complete jackass like me. <laughs> Brothers in Christ, Bishop, Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said, you cannot wait until you have it all figured out before you start to evangelize. By virtue of your baptism and confirmation, you have been sent into the world. So you just have to start. St. Jose Maria Escriva called himself the mangy donkey for Christ. If it works for a saint, why not for a me, you know? So I just, I want nothing more than to just be the jackass. Because in Numbers 22, God caused a donkey to speak for his glory. So sometimes even donkeys can say powerful things. And so that's my goal today, to share with you. You know, I want to tie into something Mark brought up in his talk yesterday about fear and how it relates to leadership and being a provider. I didn't bring this with me, but uh, Mike provided it to me to cover my, my head because... I didn't want you to, uh, be mis to be misled because the lighting in here seems to make me think I'm thinning on top. It's not true. It also adds 100 pounds to me, so not at all. But uh, back in the early 90s, during the first Gulf War, I was serving in the Marine Corps. So I want to share with you a, a moment of that, where at the time I, I didn't reflect on it, but... God has since given me an opportunity to really ponder this and reflect on it and, and understand how it affects the spiritual combat. I was a young man and I was leading a squad of Marines in enemy territory on a seek and destroy mission. We were looking for a fight. That was our job. We were in two columns and I was in the middle. We had about five to 10 feet in between each man. I had the buttstock of my M16A2 into my, 
my shoulder. My finger was covering the trigger well. My eyes were over the sights and I was scanning both sides. Each man had, had his zones as we were moving through. My point man was at the, you know, at, the, at the front over there and he was probably 25 yards in front of me. And we're moving along and all of a sudden his fist pops up into the air and we all stop, the signals pass back. Then he spreads his fingers out just like that. And he puts his palm to the ground and he lowers it very slowly. And so we get down and we move out and we spread out. And each man is just scanning, scanning, scanning. Your heart starts to pound. Is this what we came for? Is this really gonna happen? I moved up. I said, what do you see? He didn't say a word. He put two fingers to his eyes and he pointed in the direction that he saw activity. So I told him to wait. And I moved up, tried to stay as low as I could. And lo and behold, there was an, an enemy unit moving parallel to our position. This was it. This is why we signed up. This is why we train. This is what our government sent us to do. So I moved my squad into place. I set each man. I assigned overlapping fields of fire. I told them when the signal would come. I got into position. I made sure the safety was off. And I waited. The unit was moving into the kill zone, but we had to wait till 75% of them were in the kill zone. We needed to have maximum effect upon them. They had to be overwhelmed so that they couldn't respond. And the, t the time came and my hand was shaken. I could barely control just breathing. And I opened fire. And then all of a sudden, all my boys were letting it loose. No sooner than we let loose, we received fire from our rear. I swung around and I saw muzzle flashes 50 yards from me, coming from a gully. The hunter had become the hunted. We were dead. We couldn't even think about it. The Marine Corps trains for these moments because it knows that if this is the moment where you stop and you take a poll and you ask, well, what do you think we should do, Bob? Do you, do you think we should maybe, uh, how about we return fire? All in favor of returning fire? No, there is no time. The Marine Corps trains that when you're ambushed, there is one way to react. If you desire to live through the experience, you have one shot. That's to get online and counter assault with everything you got. It's not hug the ground, hide behind a tree. It's stand up and march towards the enemy in line, giving them everything you've got. So I did what I was trained to do. I turned around and I yelled, contact six o'clock, contact six o'clock, get online assault through, get online assault through. And I turned and I started to march towards the fire. The muzzle flashes of an automatic weapon facing you. But nobody was coming with me. My brothers were hugging the ground. They believed the lie. Hug the ground. 
do nothing and you'll get, you'll get away with it. But that's not the answer, brothers in Christ, because when you hug the ground, you're dead. It's just a matter of time. The enemy has got you beat because they took you out of the fight and they're only going to kill you. You want to live? You fight back with everything and you don't think about it. Fast action, superior firepower. Get a line of salt through! Get a line of salt through! I reached down to the Marine laying on the ground next to me and I hauled him up by the back of his belt. Get up, move! We were dead. So I broke contact. We moved to the rally point. And I thanked God that that was not a real encounter. That was merely a training exercise on the side of a mountain in Camp Pendleton, California. Because if I had been faced with a real ambush, we would have been dead because fake bullets told these men to hug the ground. Can you imagine what would have happened if they had been real? I wasn't brave. It wasn't because I was courageous. And it wasn't because they were cowards. It's because the human spirit, the nature of man, is preserving himself. It's counterintuitive to some respect. Preserve yourself. Hug the ground. Brothers in Christ, that's not going to save your skin. But more importantly, your fear will not only take you out of the game, leaders of men, but now those whom God has placed into your care and custody have no leadership because you have been taken out of the battle. So what do you think Satan wants you to do when he's firing rounds down your range? When he's throwing one image after another of some scantily clad female? When you're checking out of the grocery store and you're having to fight for your immortal soul just to buy bread because of the images on the magazines? Or that person that you encounter at work walking down the street, that television channel, that TV show. What do you think God wants you to, or Satan wants you to do? Nothing. Just give in. What do you think God wants you to do? Fight back! Get a line of salt through! Leaders of men, you must overcome the fear. Why? To provide for those whom God has placed into your care and custody. As I was reflecting on this talk and what I should talk about, Mark suggested I ponder Matthew chapter 6. And so I did that. I went into prayerful recollection and, and I, I was reading Matthew 6. And there's several things in Matthew chapter 6 that are very profound. You know, have faith. Trust in God. Have no anxiety, for tomorrow will have plenty of anxiety all on its own. Trust in God. Pray and act in secret. Because your Father who knows and sees in secret will reward you. You cannot serve two masters. For where your treasure is, there we will find your heart. All of that was profound. But you know what touched me the most, what stuck out to me the most about Matthew 6? It's verse 11. 
Give us this day our daily bread. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2837 says this. Daily, the Greek word is epiousios, occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a very unique Greek word. Taken literally, epiousios, meaning super essential, it refers directly to the bread of life, the body of Christ, the medicine of immortality, without which we have no life within us. Finally, in this connection, its heavenly meaning is evident. This day is the day of the Lord, the day of the feast of the kingdom, anticipated in the Eucharist that is already the foretaste of the kingdom to come. For this reason, it is fitting for the Eucharistic liturgy to be celebrated each day. When you pray the Our Father, you are praying for the Eucharistic Lord to provide for you what you need most. Now we think, Lord, I can tell you right now, Lord, I need some things. I need a van for my family because they don't have any. I need college for them. I need to feed them. The mortgage needs to be paid. I got credit card debt, Lord. I got lots of needs, Lord. What do I need most? The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is life. What do I want? I want life in me. And so how does that relate to the story of the ambush? Well, there's a very interesting uh, episode in the 12th chapter of St. John's Gospel that I found also very intriguing. Starting in verse 20, quote, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoa, time. Hold off. Offsides. Foul ball. Ten yards. Jesus' overreaction to some Greeks visiting. Repeat first down. Uh, yo, Jesus, I just said some Greeks were here, man. What is this whole hour thing you're talking about? Do you know what the hour is in John's Gospel? From the very beginning, you have this heavy anticipation. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. All of a sudden, two Greeks show up and it's, the hour is here. And he goes on to talk about the way in which he will die. The hour in John's Gospel is his passion. It's his death. So here's the question. The hour has come for Jesus to be handed over to the Gentiles, to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, to have his bodily fluids fill his lungs so that he might drown in agony, to shout out to God, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's all kicked off by these two Greeks why? 
because the ingathering of all nations has come. The same Hebrew word for nations is the same Hebrew, Hebrew word for Gentiles. Jesus is in gathering all mankind into himself. And when he is lifted up, he says in that same chapter, I will draw all men to myself. But he says, unless a grain of wheat shall fall into the earth and die, it shall not bear fruit. But if it does, it bears much fruit. Question, what is the fruit of a grain of wheat? I mean, I know what the fruit of a pear tree is. What's the fruit of a grain of wheat but bread? It dawned on me, brothers. It dawned on me that Jesus Christ is passionate. He's providing something. This hour has come. What is he providing you? His body and his blood. Life. John chapter 6, unless you eat, you shall have no life within you. But if you eat it, you will have life and I will raise you up on the last day. Jesus died to provide you what you need most. You know what struck me about that? What am I willing to die for? What am I willing to die to provide? to my wife, to my kids, to all those who are in my care and custody, to my neighbors. I'm not sure I'm willing to die to provide them anything. If I'm honest with myself, I'm a coward, bros. I'm the eternal Adam. I pray the divine mercy on the plane. You know? So what am I willing to die for? Because that's our model brothers in Christ. St. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, says this, quote, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor with spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I don't know how many of you men are married and how many are not. But brothers in Christ, you're called to be like Christ. Are you prepared to sacrifice yourself for your spouse? Now, maybe you're not married. So you're thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. You are called to be like Christ and sacrifice for your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Every man in this room, for sure. Every man within a million square miles, we'll say. Does that cover the earth? I don't know. So every man is called to sacrifice, to provide as Christ provided. And so I begin to ponder, well, <laughs> I don't know that I'm actually up to that. I mean, I can tell you how I was raised. What my father provided me, he provided me a pornography addiction from eight, nine years old. He provided me uh, sexual promiscuity. He provided me to look at women as if they were objects for my personal consumption. And then when I was done with them, that I would simply crush them like a Coke can and toss them into the garbage. 
He provided me with sage advice on how to have romantic relationships with more than one person simultaneously. He left me a, a lasting legacy that would take decades to overcome. I remember the day that I met my wife, bros. I was working in radio up in New Hampshire at an alternative rock station. I was the uh, co-host of a morning radio show and uh, I thought I was a pretty funny guy. So I was trying to crack jokes all the time. And then this girl starts calling in the station all, frequently, you know, and I'm talking to her and we're having a good time. And then one day, I'm broadcasting from a pizza joint in Nashua. And she walks in, first time I'd ever seen her. The minute I laid eyes on her, I knew I wanted to marry her. That's a cliche uh, story if you've ever heard one. And the proverbial love at first sight, but it was true. I saw her and I knew. That night, I turned to God. I hadn't talked to God and I can't remember when. It didn't matter. I just said, thank you. Let me marry her, please. I knew I wanted to marry her, but I knew I needed to find a way to provide. So one of the things that I did was I, I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna show her how good of a man I am. I'm gonna pick out the biggest and best ring that she, I'm just gonna take her and say, you pick out anything you want. I'm gonna buy it. She picked out a ring that she liked. We went to a local jeweler and made custom jewelry. A princess cut diamond, it looks literally like a diamond, and it was mounted as a diamond with two bright, brilliant sapphires on both sides with rows of diamonds on each. Awesome. I went back after and I was trying to negotiate with the jeweler. How much for that ring? $3,000. $3,000? Is that like French rupee or something? What's the conversion rate? I mean, three grand. I had to work a second job. I was going to provide. I literally shed blood, sweat, and tears. I've got scars from that job. It was a cable contractor, and we were rewiring whole towns so that they could offer high-speed cable internet access. That was the initial rollout of that. And so I was in there drilling in the snow on houses and climbing ladders and all kinds of craziness. I made exactly $3,000. I paid it off in cash. I was very proud of myself. Look what I had accomplished. Now, I have a saying. Brothers in Christ, you have dreams. Shoot for the stars. Maybe you only hit the street lamp. Shoot for the street lamp, you don't hit anything. Go big or go home. So I hatched a plan. How would I give her this ring? There was a, a hill, a mountain like uh, in the city of Manchester, New Hampshire, called Rock Rimmon. It overlooked downtown, and usually you get teenagers trying to drink up there, and people walking their dogs up there, and all kinds of uh, stuff like that. I thought this would be perfect. I hauled up to the top of this mountain a wooden dining room set, and I put on top of it a red tablecloth, and a silver candelabra with red candles. And we baked, and we made a red lobster dinner because she's Portuguese so you don't want to see how this woman tears down some shellfish it's kind of disturbing actually 
That was the one thing that almost made me decide to do something else. <laughs> I'm like, my lobster comes de-shelled normally, but at any rate. Okay, so I had the table set, everything was ready. Now I had to go get her. Only I didn't want her to know. So I went back to the apartment, because brothers in Christ, we were cohabitating. Because, you know, we were trying to be efficient, you know. We were just testing this whole thing out, taking her for a test drive. So I blindfolded her. It was amazing. I was able to convince this woman to put a blindfold on and let me drive her around town. But I did. I told her that we were going to go to dinner with my coworkers, and it was a special deal. And just trust me. So I blindfolded her. I led her to the truck and drove her around town. I didn't want her to know where we're going, so I kind of went in some crazy directions and ended up at this rock remnant, and I carried her up the mountain. And then just as the sun was setting over the city and the purples and the reds and the oranges were just at their most brilliant in the sky, I got on my knee and I took out this white ring leather case. And inside the case was a light that shown directly on the diamond so it would look brilliant. Go big or go home. <laughs> Got on my knee and I had them take off her blindfold because I had recruited her brother to help me uh, manage this process. So I, she took off the blindfold and she sees the ring and then she immediately looks at the lobsters and went, awesome! I went, whoa! <laughs> and she sees the ring and she's just overwhelmed. And all of these kids that are up there normally just to hang out, uh, you know, vagrants, they're just like, like, what is this, man? What's in the tea? I mean, what's going on? And I ask her to marry me, and she says yes. I'll never forget that day. It was a very profound day. It would be surpassed by the day we got married, and even further, when we had children. And I realized for the first time what what it means to love someone else. Because my heart grew when my kids were born. But I gotta tell you about a different day. You see, as I said, my father gave me the lasting legacy of pornography addiction, sexual promiscuity, and that didn't change simply because I was in love with this woman. And I remember she made me become Catholic. And if we're going to get married, you're going to have to become Catholic so we can get married in the church. She was a cradle Catholic, and I was raised a Church of Christ Protestant, but I was thoroughly hedonistic. Whatever, I said. All roads lead to heaven anyway. What difference does it make? I don't care. And I remember sitting in RCIA class one night as they were talking about the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. And they're reading the Beatitudes, and for whatever reason, God gave me this moment of epiphany. I'm, I didn't say anything to anybody. I'm just sort of sitting there quiet-like, and just God allowed me to have a moment of clarity. You know, it's like the internal voice said, that is true. That is authentic. That is sincere. That is how you live like a Christian. The next voice said, you are not that. But that was my voice, brothers in Christ, that was making these statements. And it was funny because I said to myself, it's a darn good thing I've got a long life to live. Because maybe someday down the road, I'll be able to live that life. I'll be able to mimic those. But not today. No, no, uh-uh. Because I knew what I would do that night when I got home. As soon as uh, she went to bed. Oh, yeah, I had high-speed internet connection. I had access to all of the smut 
I could ever want with the click of a mouse. And I did that very night. You know, I sought satisfaction, but I never found it. You know what I always found every single time? Shame. Never could find satisfaction. That's why men go deeper and deeper and deeper. They're seeking to fill the void. They're looking for satisfaction. They never find it. Until one spring day, we're married, we fast forward, we're living in our home. I'm still living this kind of life. You see, I lost my job. So no, I wasn't providing integrity. I really wasn't even providing love and respect to my wife or her family who had to move in with us. I pretty much resented that and I let them know it at every opportunity. This is my house, you're the guest. But then I lost my job and now I didn't even bring home and provide a paycheck. She was done with me. Why? It's not worth it. She wrote it out on a piece of paper. You take this, I take that. Here, we're done. I had nowhere to go. I had no one to turn to. So I got on my knees this spring day, opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and I had the proverbial <laughs> let go and let God experience. I said, God, I cannot do this. You have to do it. And in that moment of time, God granted me yet another moment of clarity. He didn't speak to me in voices. I didn't see visions, but he made his presence truly known and felt to me. I experienced him personally. I knew that when I got off my knees, there could be no more pornography. There can be no more masturbation. That I must die if necessary to save my marriage that I had to do whatever it took to save that marriage. No price was too high. If I had to grovel, grovel. I had to convince her. And so I tried. Many times she just didn't believe me. It is the witness over time that speaks the loudest words. You know what else God gave me in that moment? A deep desire to get to know him because I realized in that moment when I got off my knees, I didn't have a clue who this God was. And so I went on a journey. I started looking for him. And I ended up truly becoming Catholic. God introduced me to the early church fathers and to, and to scholars like Dr. Scott Hahn and others. And I was in love with the treasure that I found in a field. And through that journey, my wife began to trust me again. I invited her into my life and on the computer and everywhere else. And that was not easy. There were lots of very turbulent times in that. But I knew that she had to be my best friend. She had to be my accountability partner. She is my covenant partner. That is the one person on the entire planet, other than Jesus Christ, who is there for me. So that was a hard road, and it took a long time. Let's fast forward. I've been married 11 years now. Just celebrated my 11th year of marriage, um, September 30th. We have five children. 
three in heaven with God, and we trust to the mercy of God through miscarriage. Countless others we don't even know about, potentially through abortifacients and birth control. Oh, maybe some other time I'll tell you about the abortion that I took a girl to once. But we're married, 11 years, five children. I've been blessed to work full-time in Catholic ministry. I was working in New Hampshire, two jobs, because I, my wife came home to raise our kids, to <coughs> homeschool our children, and I needed to provide and give her the opportunity. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love your wife, to love their mother, and to provide the opportunity for the most perfect family condition. Now, I haven't realized perfect yet, but we're striving for it. So the best thing I can do is give them a full-time mom. It was on her heart, it's on mine. So I worked two jobs, I was killing myself, I couldn't see my kids at night, I couldn't be with my wife at night. So I was begging God, God, please provide, please God. I wanna work for you, I don't wanna work in the secular world anymore. It just didn't seem like he was answering those prayers though. We prayed a novena to the infant of Prague and after nine days, I got a job offer in Houston, Texas. Moved the family down. It was another secular corporate environment. I was a logistics manager for a trading firm. I had that job one year. It was a phenomenal job. Great benefits, good pay, a bright future financially. This is providing, I thought, for my family. After about a year, I had rustled up some men in the parish to help me put on a Catholic men's conference. I thought, we need this. Oh, wait, there's this ministry down the road. They put on conferences. Well, let's go there and let's just pitch it to them and then help them make it happen. In the middle of my pitch, they asked me if I wanted a job. I was like, wow, I, I, I don't know. I didn't come for that. I mean, what, is it, what does that mean? It meant walking away from a bright financial future. It meant walking away from almost complete 100% health care coverage for my kids. It meant doing away with things like 401ks and college for my kids. It meant living in sometimes meager housing environments. Now, God is good. Don't get me wrong. There's sacrifices to everything. And sacrifices are redeeming. If they weren't, Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross. So offer your sacrifices to the cross and you'll find value. Colossians 1.24 St. Paul says, I fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. What could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? You. You. You not offering your sacrifices to the cross. God wants you. So we prayed a novena. We got the sign we asked for. We stepped out in faith, and I've been working there almost four years. But this has been one of the hardest summers, brothers in Christ. Hard. At the beginning of the summer, my mother, my sister, her husband, and their kids became homeless. And so I invited them into our house. At the same time, our fifth child, our second daughter, was due. And so my wife, who was preparing to uh, receive into our home, our daughter, preparing the home in a certain way. We have a certain routine with the kids. 
All of that got tossed out the window. And I had to ask my wife to sacrifice. Almost at the same time, within a couple of weeks, my wife's mother's house burnt down. So she was homeless, as well as her brother and her sister. Now she's up in New Hampshire, and I was powerless to do anything about it. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Am I not the patriarch to this family? Is it not my job to provide? Why am I not capable of just providing? Is it because I stepped away from a corporate job and went into ministry that I cannot provide? You see, God was leading me on a journey this summer about providing, which was so providential that I got invited here. I felt like it was my job. I felt like I needed to earn more money so that I can just buy houses for my family because I don't want them to suffer. You ever feel like that when people suffer around you and you're like, why can't I just take that away? Why can't I just take their suffering away? Well, you know what? Shame on you for taking away the suffering God imparted upon them to lead them to where? To heaven. Because suffering is what? It's redeeming. It's sanctifying. But we look at suffering as always wrong, always negative, and we just want to take it away. Well, that's me, bros. I just want to take it away. It, I can't stand people suffering in my midst. I just felt like I got to solve their problems. But God taught me a valuable lesson. I can't solve their problems. No matter what I did, it didn't work. Towards the end of the summer, the suffering wasn't over. I lost, I have too many vans, and I lost both of them within the space of a month. The, the older one went out first to the trash heap. The newer one was on its way too. We had rebuilt, rebuilt the engine three times. We went into debt upon debt upon debt to keep this thing going because we thought that was the only option. I had to get to work. I had to pay the bills. I'll solve this. Don't you worry. I'll get a second job. I'll take care of it. Me, me, me. I saw the white man going out. And so I said, we got to pray a novena. On day six of the novena, the white man went out. On day nine, I drove home a Toyota 4Runner that was donated to the ministry that day. Salty water, it just leaks out of the eye on occasion. God is good, brothers in Christ. Just a couple of days ago, a rose was left on our front porch. That novena was prayed to St. Therese of Lisieux. We don't know who left it. I got a picture of it, I can show it to you. God is good. God is trying to tell you that you can't do it. Yeah, but He can. Have no anxiety. For tomorrow will have all the anxiety it could ever need. But you, you trust in God. I lead my family in prayer at night. We pray the divine mercy or the rosary. We offer up intentions. In fact, my wife wanted me to tell you that they were praying and offering sacrifices for you men this weekend. I try to teach my kids the faith. I try to share with them 
the glory and the beauty and the depth and the richness that God has provided you in the Catholic faith. He gave you what you needed. What did you need? You needed a family. What is a family? You share the same name. You have the same father. You sit at the same table and you eat the same meal of the one loaf, the body, the blood, the divinity of Jesus Christ who died to give it to you. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to provide for? You have an obligation, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, to provide materially for your children, to provide spiritually for them, but more importantly, to evangelize them. In your provision, you're going beyond the scope of your domestic church. Why are we so involved in our communities? Why do we care what laws they create? St. Paul says laws are written for evil men. Why? Because it takes a law to force an evil man to do something good. A just man doesn't need a law because it's always written on the heart. So why do we care what society is like? We just stay in our domestic church, right? Within our walls, we're happy? Wrong. Why do we go out and form society? Because I'm providing for my children by getting involved in my community. Because I want this day to be different and better than yesterday. Because I want them to have a safe environment in which they can thrive. Because I want to lead by example. What does a provider do? He leads by example. He provides by blazing a trail for others to follow. Yes, you're going to have to provide materially. But that burden isn't yours, bros. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's de desiring to take upon himself your burden. But if you're anything like me, you just don't give it to him, do you? You just keep it right here. No, no, I can do this. You see, when I was a Marine, I could have climbed that hill in no time. Yesterday, I had to be dragged up that hill by my partner. But let me tell you something about Joe. He exhibited leadership yesterday. My team did not qualify because of me, because it took too long to get up that hill, but I didn't quit. Oh, it'll take me longer, but I won't quit. But he wouldn't let me behind. He wouldn't let me quit. He kept after me. He kept me involved. He kept me moving forward. Is that not what a leader does? When you're under attack and the bullets are flying at you, what does a leader do? Does a leader let you lie down on the ground and die? Or does he pick you up by your belt strap and push you forward? What are you doing? How many men are in your care and custody? How many men are in your circles of, uh, of environmental influence? And yet you allow them to indulge in pornography continually. You allow them to indulge in all the vices and sins that plague our world and our human nature. Brothers in Christ are lying on the ground and Satan has convinced them to lie there and die. And you're the leader. You see, God has no plan B for your city. He has no plan B for your house, for your family, for your community, for your state, for your country, for your world. You're it. There's no plan B. 
oh, but if it doesn't work out, then maybe somebody else will come around. No, no, you're it. You're God's plan for this world. You're the light of Christ. You're the salt of the earth. When you unite your hearts to the family that Christ gave you, the church, with its shepherds that guide you and provide you the food that Jesus Christ died to provide, you have more power than you can begin to imagine. In your sacrament of baptism and confirmation, you are it. There is no other. What shall we say? Father, save me from this hour? That's John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus is saying, what am I supposed to do? Not do what my father sent me to do? What happened in the garden of Gethsemane? When the horde came out to arrest our Lord, what did St. Peter do? He pulled out that sword and started to hack off the ear of the, of the high priest's servant. What did Jesus say? Put away the sword. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me to drink? No, he says in John chapter 12. I will do the will of my father. For this is why I have come. That I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Take Jesus out and put you in. Shall you not? Do what your Father has sent you to do? To provide spiritually to your family. To provide materially for their daily needs. But to bring them to the body of Christ that they might receive the sweetness of God's love in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And then when they have fallen, do you not pick them up by their belt straps and take them to confession? Brothers in Christ, you are not defined by your sin. I'm not a sinner. I'm a son of the Most High God who commits sin. You're a son of God. The moment you take your eye off of that ball, that's when you really start to mess up. You keep your eye on the prize. You're a son of the Most High God. You might come begging to be a slave, but that father will make you a son once again. So I just want to impart upon you the desire to go home and to do one little thing different. Pray every night with your kids. Bless them. You know how many curses go out in this world every day? I can tell you how many curses I just spew when I'm driving down the road in Houston traffic. Amen. You've been to Houston. It's not pretty down there. It's like Boston. <coughs> How many blessings do we spew? How many blessings do you tell your friend, your coworker? Do you ever say God bless you? How many blessings do you give out, especially with your wife and your kids? Are you providing that to them? Lead by example, brothers. Lead by example. You want to be different? Then go and be different. Just do it. Don't be afraid. Don't let the fear convince you to hug the ground. But get up and charge. Because the enemy will run in your sight. Why? Because you are an altar Christus. You're another Christ sent into the world. If God is for you, then who can be against you? You're it. Now I pray 
that I can form the kind of men and women in my children that can come to places like this and build outdoor chapels and hike through the mountains in rainy, wet, cold weather and serve and serve and serve. If I can get them to be a tenth of what you men are exhibiting to me, then I'm going to feel pretty proud of myself as a dad. Because you men inspire me. You don't bellyache and grumble. And I know you're feeling what I'm feeling. I hardly slept a wink last night. I was freezing the whole time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think my, my bunkmates were throwing shoes at me. Shut up! Go to sleep! You know, I'm out in the woods trying to go to the bathroom and just... It's horrible. But I, don't, I hear laughing. I don't hear, oh, this is the worst. You're going to remember this weekend for how long? Yeah, I went out there. It was cold. It was wet. I hiked a mountain. I built a church. I caught 10 feet of weed in a lake that was five feet deep. I am man. Oh, yeah, I'll exaggerate when I talk to my wife. Oh, yeah, honey. I think it was like 20,000 feet peak. I'm not sure. I didn't have gloves, but that's okay. I can hack it. You're it, brothers. What are you going to do about it? I dare you to do something great. I dare you. I dare you to look past your fear. I dare you to shoot for the stars. I dare you to make the kind of children who will do something even greater than you. Is it in you? You better believe it. You better go look in the mirror and see it for yourself. Thank you.